Welcome to the Public Health Networker, the official podcast of the Public Health Podcast Network. I'm your host, Dr. April Moreno. Join us as we speak to public health professionals around the country and around the world in global, community, and environmental health topics. Join us also as we speak to podcasters in this field of public health. To learn more about us, visit publichealthpodcasters.com. And in the meantime, enjoy the episode. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Public Health Networker. Speaking with Karen Pomeras, she's a retired public health educator. We're also speaking with Linda Green, who is a retired physician. So I'm really excited to speak to them today. So I'm a retired public health educator from the George Washington University in D.C. from their School of Public Health. And I currently work with a number of different groups, Public Health Awakened and the People CDC and the American Public Health Association. And I've also been a member of the Communist Progressive Labor Party um, to organize a revolution against capitalism. And that's been a long time since 1971. So I'm just sorry we haven't been more successful. I grew up watching the news during the 50s and 60s when people were fighting to desegregate the schools and housing, mostly in the South. And I just couldn't understand as a kid why skin color made such a big difference. And it really wasn't until I entered the University of Maryland in the late 60s that I began to understand what racism was all about, that it was a political and economic device and assault. And as I became more involved in the anti-Vietnam War movement at Maryland, I realized that we really needed a different society where workers were in power and not have a society run by wealthy corporations and finance. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Karen. Sure. And Linda? Well, you know, I'm a a retired internal medicine physician, um, but of course, practicing in an office setting and hospital setting isn't exactly the best way to build a movement, probably. Um, So I've always been concerned about fighting racism since I was in medical school at Duke. And when I was down in Durham uh, during the civil rights movement and uh, working with students in my class, we also met students in public health from UNC. And we set up a free clinic, uh, which was actually led by uh, some of the white workers in the mills and the black workers in the community. Um, And they provided the leadership uh, for that particular campaign. That clinic lasted about 10 years and later was taken over by community health centers. Um, But this whole experience in fighting racism during the civil rights movement um, was great. But later I understood more about capitalism and profit making and Uh, thought more about capitalism and the need to destroy that system. So I joined the Progressive Labor Party, and also I got very involved in the American Public Health Association, where I've been a member for over 40 years, because I thought this was a great place to try to raise ideas. It's a very multiracial, multigenerational organization with lots of people all over the country. And so, you know, that's why I've been active in APHA for so long. Thank you both for joining us today. I'm really excited about this conversation and also want to thank you for the work that you've done as allies for anti-racism to talk about a lot of the root as what you said is very economic, very political. When you look at kind of the, the roots of racism and slavery, a lot of it is like this ownership of people, this profiteering off of people. So yeah, that totally makes sense that that is a root of racism in this in this country, in this world. 
tell us a little bit more about some of the work that you've done over the years, maybe what you're currently working on. Um, I guess maybe even before that, how did you even begin this journey? I think, yeah, I just want to mention one more thing about racism. One thing that makes us somewhat different than other groups is that we really think that racism hurts white people, it's, white workers. It's a fact. It hurts everyone. And many others who are not in the, quote, mostly oppressed group. Because the other side of racism, aside from the economics, which is huge, is the dividing people up. And, you know, blaming one group for another, never blaming the big bosses at the top, um, and separating us and telling us lies and blaming the victims of all this. And that really, really disempowers us. And until we reduce those divisions, we're not going to win anything. So, I mean, currently in public health, I've joined several groups. One is Public Health Awakened, which is a national and regional chapter group that wants to wake up public health people in the health departments and elsewhere and get us to be more activists. And that is a slow journey. Um, But I work with the DC chapter with Linda and we prioritized housing, healthcare, and support for workers as our top priorities. So we're working on that. And then we also are members of the People CDC, which arose out of disagreements with what the CDC was recommending for COVID. And so currently, um, you know, the Biden administration wants to end the emergency declaration on COVID and end many benefits that people desperately need. And so we're working on a statement around that and there are petitions circulating that we invite people to um, to sign because there are 400 deaths a day from COVID currently. And um, the people most affected are those over 60, people who are black workers, um, poor people, Latin people, indigenous and disabled people. And so without these protections, we really stand at a much higher risk. And so even if people don't feel they're at risk, there are others who are and we want to include them. So they're projecting that 15 million people could lose Medicaid benefits, although that also depends on state laws. But there are going to be charges for masks, testing, um, Paxlovid treatment, and vaccines. And people will just not be able to afford that. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's something that we're really active on right now. But there are many other issues, and Linda can talk about some of those. Well, well I was going to, in response to your question about what got me excited about all of this, I would yeah. like to say that the civil rights movement led to two big advances. Uh, one was the uh, creation of Medicare, and the other was Medicaid. And in particular, the Medicare thing was very personally important to me because I had a patient who was dying and did die a young woman of renal failure because she was not able to get dialysis. Under Medicare, dialysis became available. If that had happened a year or two before, she might have been still raising her kids. So that experience gave me a lot of hope that we could build a movement that would improve medical care for everybody. Um, But on the question of the current work, um, you know, I think that there's a lot of Uh, ideas about what happened to essential workers under COVID. And the fight against racism really involves looking at that more closely and figuring out how to support those workers now. So um, one of the things that I've been doing is working with uh, 
part of this public health awakened priority of work supporting workers is that uh, I've been going out to uh, various metro uh, transit systems in the DC area where there have been four strikes in the last few months uh, because the system is very poorly structured and uh, lots of contractors. So there's been strikes by bus drivers, train operators, and also by the people who drove uh, Metro Access, which took people during the pandemic. These guys were out there and women were out there driving people to doctor's appointments, shopping and so forth. And these folks uh, have had a terrible contract. They're almost all in D.C., African-American. And that fight was a, a big strike that lasted two weeks in August. And we were out there and uh, I tried to also bring public health ideas about safety in the workplace because they often had multiple riders with masks in a very closed space. And we talked about CO2 levels and things like that. So I think there's a lot of importance in supporting workers on their, on their job and in some of these places to really build more support for the working class that has suffered so much under COVID. Um, and I also wanted to mention that the current strike is out in Leesburg, Virginia, which is a right to work state. And there was a big strike out there a couple of years ago that did create a lot of support for transit workers. This one is a much smaller area and more rural. Um, and almost all the workers are immigrants. And it's really a fascinating thing to be out there with them because they're from Ethiopia, India, um, Peru, Puerto Rico, which of course is supposedly part of the United States, although one might wonder about that sometimes the way it's treated, uh, India, El Salvador. And these, these workers are all marching together, sticking together, cooking different kinds of food together. They've been on strike for three weeks. And so I think that that multiracial unity that I saw in Durham when the black and white workers united is also going on right there in Leesburg and is so important to building this fight against capitalism and against these profiteering bosses. The people who are supporting that, who run that place out there in Leesburg, by the way, are Keolis, which is a big French international company. And they were responsible for transporting Jews to Auschwitz during World War II uh, on their trains. So they're not a particularly nice company, and it's a big fight out there. Um, this kind of multiracial unity has been sort of filtering into different parts of the APHA. And in Philadelphia, a couple of years ago, we had a big rally at the APHA around immigration, Title 42, ICE. It was great. And uh, I think there's a lot of hope for organizing and public health around these issues. So those are the things I wanted to mention that are very current. We first met at our People's Public Health Conference, right? And it was definitely inspired by the People's CDC and the work that they were doing. So like, as it relates to COVID, thank you so much for talking about the buses and you know the essential workers, that language is out the window. No one uses that language anymore, right? We don't talk about supporting essential workers anymore. We used to talk about COVID at the very beginning as this great equalizer, which made no sense, right? And we started to realize that it was a great exacerbator and that more people of color were dying, things like that. But you know, we were also noticing that um, among um, people of color, early on that they weren't getting hospitalized as quickly as well. That's something that we were finding, but also, you know, there was that MD who was an African-American black woman who passed away from COVID and she spoke very vocally about how her pain and her needs were being minimized at the hospital as an MD. That was, yeah, that was very moving. Yeah. Yeah. So there's just a lot and April, as you know, I mean, I think there are certain groups who are just totally marginalized to the point of being almost invisible. 
Yeah. I think a lot of indigenous, a lot of Asian groups of people, you know, we don't even hear about right the death rates or whatever you know right yeah um, i'm glad you mentioned that even among asian populations the disaggregation of data still doesn't exist you know the um the mong the southeast asian population communities are still suffering and you know there's a lot of um disproportionate health um outcomes that are going on yeah thank <laughs> you so much for you know, talking about um, worker support and I mean, really bus busing and just opening the windows could help so much. But a lot of these buses aren't even designed for windows to open anymore. Right. But, yeah. Not the school buses. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, the school's a big issue. Yeah. When we go to APHA and we hear about different protests and different calls to action, I'm guessing that both of you have been part of a lot of those things. Oh, yeah. I could talk a little bit about some of the anti-war stuff that we've done, but we have. I mean, I still wonder, you know, how we can mobilize a national organization and when we don't see its members, you know, on a very regular basis. It's kind of a big effort at the meeting and before the meeting, but we have to find ways to sustain things. And um, I think we've had an influence. We've fought for resolutions around racist research, police brutality, I mean, from years and years ago. And we've also focused attention on war. So in 1999 and 2002, we passed two resolutions against the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. And we actually called imperialism for what it was. It was a way for the United States to secure a strategic position in Afghanistan to oppose the Soviet Union. And in Iraq, it was an attempt to grab <clears throat> the oil resources. And we talked about that and we passed the resolution and APHA actually had a press conference. But instead of talking about the roots of the war, they talked about the effects, you know, how deadly it was to people. And I think they really missed the boat and um, it's kind of the dangers of working in a membership organization that relies on the government and grants that they're not going to be really aggressive. <laughs> but lately, um, well, during that time also, one of our actions was to lead marches through the exhibit hall and go to the military booths that were trying to recruit APHA members and kind of chant at them. And at one point, we snuck in and put post-it notes <laughs> on all their exhibits calling for an end to war. It was, it kind of mobilized a group of people. And today we have a pretty similar situation with the war in Ukraine. And so we're thinking about submitting um, an abstract to give a talk about that, or maybe a resolution, although that may not happen. But we recognize the US rulers are trying to control oil, gas, minerals, and food. And they want to maintain their dominance, whereas the Russians want to secure their dominance and they want to compete for the same thing. So it's very, very dangerous. But we're saying that we can't take either side, that all these different sides of these powers, they want control for themselves, for the wealthy. One of the things that um, we recommend, although it seems very impossible, is that the soldiers should put down their arms and refuse to fight one another. And that would be, you know, that would end the war. But in this country, we have to mobilize a big anti-war movement, you know, to say we're not siding with anyone. We want an end to imperialism. 
and eventually we want a revolution. And um, that'll take a lot of people, but you look at Europe, I mean, they have these huge strikes going on, nurses, ambulance drivers, transit workers, because they have enormous inflation over there because of the war and other things. And workers around the world are also suffering because they can't get the food they rely on. So there are tremendous opportunities, I think, to build a movement. So that's kind of what we have in store and we'd love people to join us. I would say that the Vietnam War was ended more by the soldiers refusing to fight on the U.S. side than it was by the protests in the street, although they were very important to give support to the soldiers who had decided that this was no longer worth risking their lives for. I wanted to talk for a couple of minutes about some of the work on police brutality, though, because this has been a, a pretty big issue. And of course, if you build a big movement, you know, the police play a role in trying to stop it anyway. Uh, you look at the rebellions in the 60s in the cities and the role of the police. I think that one of the things we contribute to the thinking about police brutality is that it's not just you know, individual police, or it's not just trying to control crime or something like that, that it's really suppression of rebellion and people fighting back in different ways, sometimes not always clear to people how they're fighting back. But, you know, the police are pretty clear on what they're going to do. Since I retired, I've been working with Life After Release, which works with folks facing the criminal justice system, which now we call the criminal legal system because there really isn't much justice in it. The idea that we have raised this in the APHA has been a big issue in the last decade, less than, less than that, more recent even. We took our work in Prince George's County, which for a long time, driving while black was you know, Amnesty International's theme about Prince George's County. And of course, it's still a problem if you see the murder of Tyree in Memphis. Um, but in any case, in Maryland, we had this, we had a lot of work for a long time. And we finally wrote it up and we presented it at one of the Black Caucus sessions at the APHA. And a number of young students were very excited to find out that the public health people were talking about the police. Uh, it was kind of the first time, I guess, that this had really become a big issue. I, a lot of things about war and imperialism had gone on, but not so much about domestic terror and so forth. So um, it took us three years to pass a policy statement against police brutality by the mm -hmm. APHA. There was a lot of concern. A lot of public health people do work with police on different things like drug overdoses and um, child safety and so forth. So, you know, obviously there's connections that made it seem uncomfortable for a lot of people. But nevertheless, eventually, this policy became the policy of the APHA. And um, the uh, APHA was extremely happy to have this policy when George Floyd was murdered, and there were major rebellions in the street. So we did them a favor, even if they didn't really want it at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And I think that this kind of kind of organizing is good because I think we shifted the thinking of a lot of people in public health. And I think that, you know, we've been able to use this uh, policy in a number of testimonies and fights and local issues around police issues and whether you're going to put your whole city budget into the police force or whether you're going to try to do something for social determinants like housing and education and so forth. Um, so I think that that's that's been a big success. Uh, subsequently, there's been a, another policy on prison abolition. And more recently, there's been um, some work this year. There's going to be a policy statement presented on not shackling people. This seems kind of smaller, more narrow, perhaps. But the idea that patients in a hospital can be shackled um, 
while they're getting health care is really anathema to a lot of us in medical practice and also limits their access to good care because they're tied down to the bed, you know. Mm-hmm. And some it started with talking about pregnant women being shackled in prison, which is, you know, so this policy will come up for debate and there'll be a lot of discussion, but it spins off of a lot of the work we've done around police issues in the in the in the APHA. I'd say there's been a lot of support. It's not all the communists doing this. So I think it's great that there's been a lot of multiracial struggle around the police in, in APHA. How can we uh, re-energize? Is there a possibility to see kind of the civil rights movement uh, reborn again? Is is that a possibility? So, you know, with the, the COVID pandemic starting in 2020, um, we saw like Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, uh, those murders, and people were really vocal for the first time in a while, right? Um, that they were really standing up against police brutality, racism, things like that. But then it died down again really quickly. It's just really sad that, you know, it was just a temporary moment. You know, they they talk about the moment versus the movement, right? So for some mm-hmm. of us, the movement just continues, right? It just continues. Sure. But for others, it just, you know, people were putting up those, those black, um, you know, Instagram photos and banners, just like, you know, to show solidarity, but really it, it became a business, um, customer service, um, marketing outreach for a lot of people. And then also I wanted to add on to that, you know, like what you said with APHA, a lot of the work they do is top down and that's just the nature of it, right? People go to APHA because they, you know, it's a business opportunity. It's a promotional opportunity. They go to get uh, free paid time off from work. They go to build their resume. I mean, um, the public health impact is almost, I hate to say it's almost secondary in many cases, you know? And that's why we started the People's Public Health Conference because we needed a a bottom up approach to public health for a change, right? Exactly. Uh, so yeah, those are kind of the things I wanted to add on to what you were saying, Linda. But yeah, please tell us a little bit more about the work that you've seen. But I think some of the problems are is that we're not organized into you know groups, organizations that have accountability, have a plan. I mean, that's one reason that we support having the Communist Party, because you need a structure to plan for things and to respond and to visualize what we want. And I think in this current climate, which is different than the 60s, I believe, is that people rely on, number one, working in an NGO, thinking that an NGO can be a real activist organization when they really can't. They're tied down with all this philanthropy and grants and and things like that and pleasing the government. And, you know, certainly in these big organizations like APHA, they, they say they want a seat at the table. They want, they want to be part of the system. They don't want to oppose it. And then I think for a long time, you know, since the civil rights movement, um, voting has replaced a lot of white governors, oh, I guess mayors primarily and other politicians with black and Latin mayors and other politicians. And I think people felt that they would serve in people's interests and That may be questioned now that we see five black cops, you know, murdering Tyree Nichols. But, you know, there are many, many examples that have existed. So just to answer your question, I think we need to build organizations. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really tough, but Mm -hmm. I don't think we can do it without that. So Linda, I'm sorry. 
Yeah, well, of course, I echo that. I mean, I think without being organized, we can't really make some of the impacts we do. One of the reasons we've put forward consistently issues around the fight against racism in APHA is because we have had a plan every time that we go to the meetings and stuff to try to sharpen the debate and strengthen the movement. Um, a couple of other examples I wanted to mention was the the, the role of genetics and eugenics has been a big issue for a long time, of course. Mm -hmm. And I think people may have thought that it was kind of over after Nazi Germany was defeated or something like that. But really, no, it's not. And I think that uh, in, in the APHA, we've there was a period of time when mm -hmm. mental health was being uh, discussed uh, by the National Institutes for Mental Health. And they were putting forward the idea that maybe there was a genetic reason for crime in the black community. And they were doing experiments on children in Columbia University. And we put forward a, you know, this was total, totally wrong and racist and there was nothing to these genetic ideas. And we held a big session with Robert Lewontin and others who were very well known in the genetics field, you know, and it really stopped that campaign by the NIMH. Um, it seemed odd at the time, but then you, when you think about the history of eugenics, these things do pop up from time to time and become very big issues. So I think you have to be alert. One of the areas that I think is, as, as genetics becomes more and more detailed, people are going to find more and more little things that they want to use to blame people for things instead of thinking about inclusion, instead of thinking about involving everybody in the society in a way to be good. And as communists, we, of course, that's what we want. But everybody wants that really that's got any sense so i think that the idea of the geneticists uh coming up with new ways to identify people for various people on the autism spectrum and you can be anything you do might put you on the autism spectrum these days and a genetic you know snip or something might might be the reason we've also fought against the idea of racial inferiority theories which you would think by now were put to rest. But part of the thing about the movement that you mentioned is that affirmative action, for example, was an effort to try to improve the situation of the discrimination in education uh, towards Black and Latin and poor white uh, workers. And uh, there was a big pushback by the ruling class in the United States against that. And there still is. And it's continuing. It's actually sort of expanding now. And I think that when we, we did a program one year at, on the bell curve, which was a part of that long history of racist theory and so forth. And I think a lot of people really came around to that. It, it, so people know in public health that these things are bad, but they don't always remember exactly how it works. And so we have to stay vigilant on, on these matters. Um, and another way that that factors into medical practice, which is more what I used to do, is that there are many race-based algorithms out here that are used in medicine. You may be familiar, and probably people are familiar with the idea that the concussion protocols in the National Football League were not allowing black workers to benefit as much as white because they claimed that they had lower intelligence and therefore their studies were not so good. And so they really weren't hurt as much by getting their heads mashed in on the football field as the white workers. And this is one example that's pretty egregious and has been resolved in the courts. But the other types of things like kidney function, pulmonary function, white blood cell counts, many, many things that we use are all race-based. 
when in fact they should probably look much more closely at social factors that lead to these various problems. So one recent example that was in the paper was about kidney function in people who work in very hot environments. You know what, their kidneys don't tolerate that. It showed the Nepalese going back after working in the uh, soccer stadiums in Qatar and having terrible outcomes with needing dialysis and so forth. So if we would look more at the way life impacts people and try to figure that out instead of using race-based algorithms all the time, we would really advance. This is an area that I'm very interested in. My daughter in Chicago is doing a lot of work on this in uh, the VA system. And I think we can really um, strengthen this movement by looking at some of these academic points. I know it seems a little remote, but it's actually very important to the thinking about eugenics and, and that sort of thing. Absolutely. Well, the last thing I wanted to mention about APHA is that in, on, on the international scheme, we did have a policy statement last year on global vaccine access, uh, which the APHA had not really had spoken out much about getting the vaccine out to the rest of the world, but uh, we did manage to get a policy through. So it's now policy. So if we want to use it more in this particular pandemic and others, we can. And that represents sort of an international fight against racism. Thank you. So those, are the things, those are the main things I wanted to tell you, April. <laughs> I love it. Thank you. And I have so much to say about that as well. You know, we're starting a public health IT conference. Um, mm. I invite you, Linda, because we're going to be talking about things like this. Um, the implications on public health, for, you know, genomic data access and what that means to the to the community, to the public at large as well. What does that mean for you, your relatives, your your descendants, your ancestors, and so on. There's a lot of implications that we're not talking about. The other, just one other issue around international health is that I think this passed, Linda could correct me, but we had a resolution about Haiti and about the cholera outbreaks. And they have one now. And as we know, the situation in Haiti is tremendously chaotic. But we actually have people down there on the ground who are from Haiti, live there, who are trying to organize mutual aid and get people minimal health care and water and food, while they're also educating people about the need for a revolution in Haiti and to get rid of all these leaders and get rid of UN and US interventions there. So a lot of people and, are- And the French, and, and those French. Oh, yes. <laughs> Sorry about that. Yes, who required reparations from Haiti until I think the 70s, because Haiti abolished slavery and therefore hurt the French. It's just phenomenal. Yeah, with clinical trials, right? The lack of diversity in clinical trials, that's huge. But then it's really difficult because some of us, like, we're not comfortable even participating anyway, right? So it's 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 really complicated. And it's really difficult um, in terms of, but then, it, you know, with some of the nonprofit work that I do for autoimmune communities, we do include BIPOC communities in our research, but we do it in, in a different way, right? We're doing it in a community-based participatory way where they, where they have uh, input and they have a voice in the process. So, I mean, I think that's one alternative or one option to bring more inclusivity into trials and, and I don't know, not necessarily clinical trials, but whatever kinds of behavioral health trials and so on. But yeah, I just wanted to add to that. There's just so much difficulty with diversity in uh, research. Right. And I think the other issue around um, eugenics and excluding people is the disability movement. And Linda's been working with people there. 
in the uh, alternative uh, APHA thing that you did, you know, the <laughs> Stacy and and uh, Michael and Christine, I think, did the discussion about the schools and right. education and so forth. And uh, they're really a great group. So I was really happy they got the chance to present some of their work, which is real grassroots and uh, mm -hmm. still challenging the system. You know, the Office of Edu Office of Civil Rights in the Department of Education still has open hearings available. You can still talk to them about trying to make the school safer and help uh, deal with the problems of uh, students with disabilities. But it's a huge problem. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it's 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 not solved by the way it's chopped into little pieces so that each school can complain about a parent of the school can complain and they can look into it. But, you know, there's a, a huge laundry list of of schools all over the country where people have raised questions about the care and management of students with disabilities. And so I think we need a much you know more centralized approach to the whole thing. And I don't think it'll be solved under capitalism, frankly. But, you know, if we really do care about the lives of everybody that and their ability to contribute, we have to improve the school system and make it safer. But thank you so much. I'm realizing more and more how much both of you were a huge part of the conference. <laughs> Basically, just talking about the, you know, existing research that's out there where um, I'm not going to name any specifics because I actually, you know, it's complicated. But, you know, there's there's research out there that collects DNA from communities, right? Also, um, underrepresented communities, and we don't know exactly the scope and the scale of what they're going to be doing with that research, right? Mm -hmm. We don't know exactly what it's for, who it um, is uh, given to. The problem is there's really no such thing as de-identification of data because, you know, we have organizations that will match you to things um, as, you know, out there as like your voting record, your driver's license, your uh, shopping habits, your credit score, and they will link that to your That's patient right. record, right? So now they're going to, they can, people feasibly can know every single thing about you. And then also your, your genomic, um, your likelihood of having a certain disease, your likelihood of someone else having that disease, those implications mm -hmm. on insurance, um, mm -hmm. and other things, right? Access to care. Um, there's just so much. And it's, it's almost like free, free reign to like, just have access to, I mean, that's what mm -hmm. I'm seeing. I don't know. I, I mean, mean, all of that I, could I be, be all of that, but all of that wrong. could be, all of that could be done. If we had a decent society, some of that information would be valuable to people, you know, but under capitalism, it'll probably be used to attack people. And so this is the big problem. Right. For but, things like insurance or like, you know, denying care. Um, incre increasing cost. Yeah. So, so let's talk about this because communism, you know, everyone thinks of it as it's a bad word, right? It all mm -hmm. kind of, be, I mean, it probably began even earlier than the eighties, but, you know, from kind of my childhood growing up, you know, Gorbachev and all that stuff that was happening in USSR, and, you know, the word communism was just this huge, scary word that yeah. people want to stay away from. And, and they do the same. It's happening a lot with socialism now too, right? It just, you just have to say that word and we run, right? It's just, it's scary. Um, it sounds, it's bad. It's its something we're not supposed to want. Um, tell us more about what communism is and why it's important right now, especially as we talk about public health. What we have under capitalism is kind of what we call the dictatorship 
of the bourgeoisie, whatever. It's the rich people, you know, very small percentage who own all these corporations and they make profit through exploitation, which means they pay workers less than what we create and the value of what we create. So under communism, we basically want to get rid of exploitation, which means we don't profit. But we have a vision that people can give according to their commitment. So if somebody is really good at construction, they will build houses or whatever is needed. And that's a plan. And then we want to guarantee that everybody can contribute something that nobody's left out and that people in turn will receive things that we need, housing, food, education, et cetera, depending on what's available, because there'll be surplus and there'll be scarcity, but the idea is that it should be shared according to people's needs. So a family with a lot of children get more food than a single person. And because there's no profit, there's really no reason to have racism because we don't need to pay like black people even less than white workers to make more money. And we don't need to divide people because we really wanna bring people together. So that's a big part of it. And um, there were certainly you know, examples during COVID and during any disasters where people run to a disaster and help people. And I think we're seeing that with the earthquake today and we've seen it in mutual aid organizing under COVID. And when people talk about cooperatives and running their own work site, you know, that's a form of communist as well. So I think if people only understood what it was about and it didn't have such a, a name, you know, with the history involved, people would probably like it more. Because what we believe is you can study the mistakes that were made and you can correct them and go on to create something different that has different mistakes. Mm -hmm. So we can talk about what those things were as well. Mm -hmm. I'll stop here and let Linda expand. Yeah, well, I mean, one of the really important things we would like to see under communism is the elimination of wages. And this is a big part of Progressive Labor Party's outlook on how we can correct many of the mistakes of the past. In medicine, it was particularly ominous in, in, in the Soviet Union when they just started instituting wage differentials within the healthcare system. Um, and there are some wonderful examples from China where people during the heyday of the communist revolution in China, there were a lot more shared responsibilities. And also people could uh, learn and advance their skills. In, in capitalism today in the healthcare field, you're trapped as a CNA or, you know, you'll you, it's very hard to learn on the job and move up. And even today among social workers, there's a big fight to get black social workers licensed because they use these standardized tests and things mm -hmm. like that. And they separate the, the different levels of wages and stuff within things like social work and medicine. This is true throughout the society and it's really very destructive. So I think eliminating the wage system is, is really important. And the mutual aid experiences that Karen mentioned I was involved in in Mount Rainier, a small town in Maryland, where we did 
a lot of food distribution and we made sure that we got food for people that was culturally appropriate so that everybody didn't get mashed potatoes you know um it was it was great and there was it was all figured out by people who were not part of the government it was all much more now it is possible that a government could do much more so for example in kerala in india there was much more of a government-led distribution of everything during COVID, and it was much more effective uh, than what we did. But we did our best, and, you know, if we'd had state power, we could have done a great job for working people in this country, but we don't have it, and the capitalists do, and they do whatever little bit they can do to try to buy people off, but they're not going to really look at the welfare of people. So I think getting rid of the wage system is one thing, and having state power and being able to plan things out and distribute fairly is 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 just critical. Um, I wanted to mention a couple of exciting things in medicine that happened in, as a part of these revolutions in the past. And I think we should bring these stories forward more when we talk, because a lot of young people are looking at communism and socialism. They're, they're really interested in these ideas now. I mean, I, it, there was a period, like you mentioned, in the past where you know nobody would talk about it because it was such a scary word but i think it's sort of changing now and i think people are looking at at options so i think we should tell some of the stories about how life expectancy increased in the soviet union and infant mortality went down you know the us does terrible with infant mortality and maternal oh, yeah. mortality right now like we're even dropping in life expectancy thanks to covid right thanks to the misinformation disinformation there was a lot of improvements in people's lives uh, as a result of those revolutions. And one example of how if you have state power and you're really going to deal with something, it's just the semiosis in China was a big deal. Uh, it was carried by snails. It was killing lots of people. But they were able to mobilize the population to pick out the snails from the riverbanks. And, uh, you know, they essentially eradicated just the semiosis in the area around Shanghai and so forth. I, I think that these kinds of examples are really can give people a lot of hope that we can do things. There've been a little bit of examples of how the World Health Organization did get rid of smallpox, you know. I mean, it is possible that that many, many health things could be improved through a communist leadership and again, having control, which means having state power and not letting the capitalists tell us what to do all the time. Um, but I think these stories, uh, many of, there are many in the experience of China and Soviet Union. Uh, should be shared uh, to the young people who are really excited about trying to find an alternative to capitalism. Um, one example with the current, the current pandemics um, was monkeypox, right? So we're hearing that that's actually no longer in epidemic phase. It's it's being contained and that um, in large part to the LGBTQIA community who already knew how to mobilize and work together exactly. to yeah. control AIDS. So now we know how to control monkeypox and px that's going on in the community so it's just wonderful yeah. I, mean, I wish we could do the same with covid it's still it's not going away no and you know the idea of ignoring it is a bad idea so yeah which they do in african countries you know where mpox is really prevalent you know they've had you know this for years and years and it never became an issue until american people got it yeah but you're right people mobilized and you know, whatever culturally sensitive ways. And Linda and I worked with people fighting for HIV improvements also, prevention and care, and, you know, learned a tremendous amount. And it was really, you know, grassroots groups like ACT UP and others, local New York, 
you know, who really pressured the government. And, you know, after years and years, AIDS drugs became available for more parts of the world, but it hasn't been replicated with COVID vaccines. And it just shows you win something, whether it's big or small, but the capitalists have a way of taking it back. And that's why, you know, one reason we really want to change in who's in power, mm-hmm. you know, because it gets very discouraging. You know, you win a wage increase and then everything, all the prices go up because mm-hmm. you know, we have no control. And when we vote, we're not voting for war. We're not voting for, you know, prices, wages, any of those things, you know, so it really keeps us spinning over politicians and, you know, appealing to legislators. But just about all of the current Congress voted for war appropriations, whether they claim to be socialists or not. Another huge thing coming down the pike is this whole idea of national borders. I just want to throw this in, that Mm -hmm. if we have a communist world, we will get rid of these borders. And uh, one of the things, one of the signs at the rally at the APHA on ICE and Title 42, one of the some of the workers from the community clinic had a big sign that said, uh, money crosses borders, why not people? <laughs> and I think that this is really also a very important thing, which communists can provide a lot of leadership on. We have to really oppose uh, the idea that national borders mean anything and that people's lives mean more. Mm-hmm. And this requires building quite a strong movement. I just want to reemphasize what Karen said about the need for a party and the need for an organization that can deal with many of these issues uh, and that has a multiracial outlook and also is multiracial in its organization. So one of the big problems we have in America is that different groups protest around different things, but they don't always stick together and, and support each other. Public health offers a chance to do that. So I think that that public health outlook could really change the paradigm if we can continue our work around those kinds of ideas. There were thousands and thousands of immigrants, mostly Spanish-speaking, marching in D.C. one year, but there were very few white or black people there. And then George Floyd, it was more multiracial. That was better, but still largely a black-led movement. And, um, you know, the anti-war movement in the uh, against Vietnam was almost all white. And you know, I think we have to overcome those barriers and a communist party can work at that and has that outlook. Uh, and it had to do with the vaccines, like the international vaccine access uh, that I don't know what that's looking like right now with COVID. I just, we weren't able to achieve that. Right. And I mean, we're already behind. We, we don't even have antibodies for the current strain. No. And even and even the treatment Paxlovid is not made accessible throughout the world. Yeah. Although China got a lot of it from the United States, apparently, but when they had their outbreak very recently. But honestly, the even the treatments for if you're not going to give the vaccine, at least give the treatment. It's yeah. it's just so interesting because like when we talk about globalization, I think there is a certain level where they do they all partner, right? There is some level mm-hmm. where there is partnership. It's just like beyond what a lot of us are capable of accessing. What if we can create something new? What if we can create something that identifies the best parts of what different countries are doing and create a movement in that way? I just don't know. I mean, that just sounds like more work though. That's inventing, like reinventing something, right? Well, we have members in many different countries around the world 
it's just, it's very small. Mm. But I, I think anytime anybody rebels against the system, no matter what they're fighting for, they're called a communist. It is true that there are some interests where the international sharing of information is important mm -hmm. to both the yes. capitalists and the working class. So uh, but when it comes to profit, it's a different story. Right. Yeah. I mean, some people can have international bank accounts and some of us can't, right? <laughs> yeah. or some of us can move, you know, can leave Ukraine and some people can't, you know, like the yeah. racism involved in that and the way... Um, mostly Indian and Black African students were treated. Yeah. And, and I wonder, you know, where was the outrage over Syria and Yemen? You know, oh, all the time. Yeah. It's certain countries that get all the the banners, the stickers. Yeah. I know Ukrainians are white, you know, and a lot of people from here had um, grandparents from the region. And so, you know, I think people are more concerned because of that. Of course, mm -hmm. there's tremendous destruction, but I mean, hundreds of thousands of people have died of starvation in Yemen, kids. We have um, a blog, an anti-racist blog, and, and participating in organizations to try to win people to go further than just reforming the system. It's not easy, April, as you say, and changing names. Doesn't so necessarily easy, make a I do it. What a way to live, to not have to worry about my worth as a human being um, based on, you know, what kind of paycheck I can get, you know, what kind of pay I can provide to my family. You know, where you were born. I mean, pure luck. I think people are starting to have these conversations. You know, we talk a lot about capitalism and, and um, you know, overwork and um, burnout and people just really wanting this movement toward rest. We see that a lot in, um, you know, we, largely we've seen it recently in the BIPOC community, but um, that those conversations have been happening even with physicians, right? Joy at work, that kind of thing as well. Um, you know, right. as not being just these um, teens for labor, there is a growing awareness or agreement that capitalism definitely has its flaws. Mm -hmm. um, and we are definitely at least, you know, more possibly more so on the BIPOC side of the communities seeing you know a lot of disadvantages of capitalism and how it doesn't support everybody in the same way but i wonder if there's some point from there that can connect to how the world could be better how we can begin to envision a place that really actually genuinely cares for humanity i think i think the way people support their families and their communities. There's so much that's positive in the working class, in the unions, when someone's sick, they pay, give them sick leave and stuff because, you know, sick leave banks. There's so many ways in which people support each other in the working class. I think we really have to emphasize those things to people mm -hmm. when we create a vision. I think we need to study history because when people struggle over an issue, people tend to unite. So in the 30s, the sharecroppers were just decimated, white and black. And the white sharecroppers actually went on strike and lined the highways, you know, living there because they had no place to go. And people from the Ku Klux Klan, these white farmers and sharecroppers, actually joined that movement and lived among, you know, the people already on strike. And then they shared land to live on. So there have been many instances in strikes where people come together at the University of Maryland, um, there was a movement to improve the conditions of facility workers and housekeepers. And these white men, these older white men would come to the meetings and say, we support you, sister, you know? 
and stand up for mostly the Latina housekeepers. People don't know about these things. So in terms of what Linda was asking for, I and another comrade have a blog called multiracialunity.org. And we try to lift up these struggles where people have fought together and we criticize places where the segregation and the oppression is strong, like in Israel. And we have study groups where we invite people to discuss these topics. So we had one on Native American adoptions and child welfare. Recently, we talked about fascism in Israel and what we could do to bring people together there. And we've talked about the war and different other issues. And we invite people to tell us what they want to talk about. February 19th, there's going to be an anti-war march in D.C. It's going to meet at the Lincoln Memorial at 1230 and march to the White House. So that's a very concrete action people can take. I would invite people if they want to join the People CDC and also, you know, the Safe Schools Movement. There are a lot of organizations around disability issues. And they relate to COVID as well as other things. So, you know, the more inclusion we have and the more participation, because it's got to be partly discussing ideas and doing something. And Linda re really represents, you know, the model of going out to strikes, connecting with workers and talking about these issues. Yeah. And also, I should mention, <laughs> the party has a newspaper called Challenge Desafio, where we print editorials and um, notices and descriptions of what's happening in different struggles. The website is plp.org. Pretty yeah. easy. Great. And we have clubs, you know, based on what we work. So we have teachers clubs. And that's, that's how we operate. We come together every couple of weeks and discuss issues and how we can deploy our members, what are our priorities, and then people from there meet with a citywide group and people from there meet with, you know, a group of people all around the country and the world if we can get them in. So it's it's pretty yeah. democratic. It's not this authoritarian top-down movement. Yeah, thank you for mentioning that. I think that's a, a huge um, image that people have when it comes to communism. We think about the monument of the you know, the man <laughs> standing there and everyone just kind of like worshiping yeah. this man. Stalin and Mao. Yeah. Yes. And we hate cults of personality. So you'd never even know the names of our, you know, people. I like where this is going in terms of, you know, these points of agreement, like you mentioned, like at the union, regardless of people's uh, political affiliation and their, the beliefs that they think they believe, right? There's, there's always these gray areas of agreement, right? Where we mm -hmm. actually have a lot in common, right? So like, you know, I'm, I'm in throughout my neighborhood, we've got huge supporters on different parts of the political spectrum, but we get along because, you know, we're agreeing on certain things, right? But we mm -hmm. almost forget that huge obnoxious flag that's out front um, mm -hmm. in the neighbor's yard, right? We almost forget mm -hmm. because of these points of agreement and um, alignment that I'm hoping we can continue to grow upon. And that's a lot of relationship building, you know, at a very grassroots level. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us today. Is there anything else that we need to know in terms of public health and the future and, and the direction of where things are going? I just well, believe that public health covers everything in the world. It does. <laughs> it leads to health. Everything. Yeah. And the APHA next year is in Atlanta, the home of the CDC. So we can see if they've improved by the time we get there. Yeah, yeah I'm hoping to go. I, I love Atlanta. I'm hoping to go. We'll oh, see I what happens. I hope you do, April. 
Yeah. Yeah. I just, I don't know if I feel safe getting on a plane yet, to be honest. No, I think that comes first. That's why it's so great that you do your work virtually so we can participate because I'm not going either. Yeah. I mean, every, every show doesn't work anymore. I'm immunocompromised. I, I just don't know. Yeah. And I'm with you on that autoimmune community. So <laughs> we yeah. do what we can. Exactly. You do a lot. And that's, this is really reaching a lot of people, what you've done, April. So it's, yeah. it's great. Thank you very much. Thank yeah. you. Thank you so Thank much you for, for considering and inviting us. Yes. Absolutely. Come back again, please. Oh, anytime. And we'll be in touch. Thank you. Thanks, everyone.